Welcome to Yapo Live, featuring conversations with top D2C leaders. On September 12th at Yapo's conference, Destination D2C, Jake Kassan, president and co-founder of Movement, sat down with Marty Swant of Forbes to share insider tips, industry trends, and much more. Um, well, thanks for joining back up. Great to meet you all. Or not meet you, but be here. Um, and great to meet you, Jake. Um, so I wanted to start off, just for people that don't know Movement, uh, could you tell us a bit more about how did you guys get started? And how did you get into the watch business in the first place? Yeah, so uh, we were crowdfunded in 2013 on Indiegogo. Uh, I was in college at the time and really looking to start a business that I could get you know, behind and be passionate about. And fashion was always something I was really interested in. And uh, specifically when I looked at the watch market, there just wasn't a brand that I really resonated with. Um, from again, the branding perspective, even from the aesthetic of the design, which Again, there's so many watches out there that sounds kind of crazy, but it was just kind of scratching my own itch and seeing that there wasn't something that you know my demographic wanted. Um, so that was one piece. Also, being uh, a, a you know a broke college student, uh, I couldn't afford any of the watches that I did like. So, kind of trying to reverse engineer how to create a brand uh, that I really loved and was passionate about, uh, create you know a watch watch product that. Uh, you know, had the type of quality I wanted, and, and then how to, how to build the brand um, in this day and age. And uh, I had some other e-commerce businesses in the past, so just really leveraging, you know, e-commerce and Indiegogo and kind of some of these new tools that still weren't, you know, buzzwords at the time, but um, that was a disruptive model for the, for the, you know, for a lot of industries, but specifically the watch industry, and it allowed us to, to scale very quickly and, and grow movement into what it is today. Yeah. No, that is neat, like thinking about com combining those things of, okay, like, I mean, I wouldn't know the first thing about making a watch, you know, um, but thinking about bringing those two things together. So how did you, when you start, first started thinking about D2C, because that was back in... What, 2013. Yeah, so that was before D2C became like this household phrase that, oh. and that, that marketers are thinking about, that consumers are, I guess, being marketed about, um, but... How has that shifted from when you guys first started and the way that you guys sold online to now? What are the things that you were thinking about then and um, how has that shifted over the last five, six years? So when we started, the word influencer wasn't really even a word. So it was trying to you know, navigate a landscape that didn't really exist as much as it did now. Um, I mean, even you know, at that time, I feel like Shopify was still a, a newer, you know, name um, in the industry. So it was a different challenge. It was, you know, there weren't brands that had kind of done it before. You know, a lot of the brands like Warby Parker and some of these other guys were on legacy systems because they, you know, started even earlier. So for us, it was just trying to navigate that landscape. Um, you know, we, we started using Instagram, which wasn't, you know, we had to decide Twitter or Instagram. Twitter was a much you know, larger platform at the time, but Instagram um, was more visual. So it made sense for us who's selling a, a visual product. And then we'd see people who had watch Instagram accounts or, you know, uh, you know models uh, at the time, and we'd, we'd have to decide, or if we pay this person, are they going to return a, a profit for us? So just kind of testing. And back then, it, it, you know, it really started the work, um, but there wasn't that many people on. So just navigating that, where, where now it's obviously widely known and I think you have to be a little bit more creative or you have to be a little more innovative in, in like what marketing tactics. So, you know, we're now playing around with Twitch. Uh, we just bought a PC and 
a camera, a whole gaming setup in the office where we want to invite gamers in. We want to stream, and, and we're, we're playing around with kind of unique ideas just because we don't know what's going to take off. So you kind of have to keep that uh, agility and keep that kind of innovation alive. Um, TikTok, which I still don't fully understand, but uh, <laughs> we're playing with it, and we're trying to figure that out. Um, about to create a TikTok here on Instagram yeah, now. I don't know how no. to do it, but... Yeah. Uh, and then Instagram, you know, for us even like... Uh, it's funny, some of our most engaged stories actually, in fact, our, our most engaged stories are actually behind the scenes content of The Office. So we'll, spread, we'll spend thousands of dollars on a highly produced, you know, Instagram story uh, that we're really proud of. And then we have someone in the office dunking a coconut and breaking a glass window, and that somehow beats everything out. So it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily selling watches per se, but... It's, it's activating the audience and it's, it's a kind of a, a, a hack that you have to continue to play where, because you're not getting the same amount of reach as you once were. So I guess long and short of it is, is things have changed and you have to be more creative and you have to just consistently test. I don't think there, if you, think, if you feel like you have an answer because it once worked, that's a bad attitude. You have to continue to innovate and continue to test to see what works next. Yeah, I, I wanna come back to the whole Twitch idea in a quick second, but I wanted to ask about the Instagram versus Twitter dilemma because um, what made what would have been the pros of doing Twitter for example I know you obviously watches visual makes a lot more sense for Instagram but when you're deciding between those two what would have been in the camp of Twitter I think Twitter was just a, a larger uh, more mature uh, platform mm -hmm. um, now obviously Facebook bought Instagram so we had faith there and we had success with you know Facebook from a social media marketing standpoint organic and paid, um, but I don't know, I think, I feel like, you know, Twitter had been out for a while, and, um, and also just the way Twitter works, like the tweets are kind of alive for a certain amount of time, and they, they kind of, I feel like the lifespan of a tweet is much shorter than a post, especially back then, I mean, back then, your entire audience saw, uh, you know, a picture that you'd post, so, uh, and we just saw the rapid growth of it, um, and there was, it was just more visual, and, it, and, and honestly, like, I was, I think I was 21 or 22 when I started the business, and I was using Instagram more than, than Twitter. So that was also another reason where I saw my demographic using this platform and, and kind of becoming addicted to this platform where it just made sense um, just from like a critical thinking, what, what, what's a better platform to, to move to, so. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. So um, it's interesting thinking that you, or that you mentioned Twitch because it seems like a lot of uh, watch brands are trying to go after this gamer uh, or like just th this esports model, maybe not a lot, but I'm thinking of uh, like Swatch is a sponsor of the Drone Racing League, um, and so it's, I don't. What is it about that demographic that's appealing to you guys when you're thinking about gaming and watches, and and why that's that maybe makes sense for for movements market? So I think Twitch as a platform is extremely interesting because you have you know you typically have when you're talking about Twitch you have a you know a pro athlete who is literally their face is directed at the camera and they're engaging with their, their audience the entire time. Like I, I can't think of really any other professional sport that, uh, that someone does that, you know? Like, so you really get to know the character. If you donate or, or send us you know, a, a sub, like there's, there's a, just a cycle of communication the entire time you're engaged in it. Um, so, and then you're, you're also online. So if you wanna take action to convert on a sale or if they tell you to go check out this, that's instant versus watching, you know, an NBA game or football. Like it just, you know, I still obviously, you know, major league sports are still, you know, bigger, but I think that Twitch is a growing 
platform. I think gaming is going to you know continue to, to to grow. So it's just an interesting place to get in early, learn, um, because Instagram, Facebook, Snap, like all these other areas are already kind of oversaturated. So it's good to look where, where no one else is looking and, and you know try and be first mover because you could really take like we even did that in, in early days we did that with Tumblr too we had kind of a affiliate program going where I had all of these different kind of mood board of, of what the what we thought was an aspirational movement man and and then all of these kids around the world were doing like affiliate uh, sales for us there so just trying to figure out different systems because we didn't have money we 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 never really raised any capital we we did the Indiegogo where we, we got three hundred thousand dollars but those were pre-orders um, and outside of that it was you know going into five thousand dollars of, of kind of credit card debt to really fund samples and everything else so we had to leverage platforms and social media where we can kind of do it organically and or free so yeah so thinking about how the influencer market has shifted you know from being you know athletes and whatever um, back in the day models and stuff like that to gamers now um, in addition to that shift it's been interesting thinking about how people are thinking about measurement I know you touched on that a little bit but could you talk a bit more about that what, have you implemented certain types of you know measurement to really look at that attribution um, whether it's bringing in like a third party to to make sure that it's actually converting into sales. Is that something you guys have started doing yet or is that still on the horizon? For all platforms or for Twitch and? Uh, I guess I was just thinking across the board, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we have, well, there's definitely tools that we use. I think um, one is Looker, which is more of a, it kind of stores all of our data and allows it, takes data from different sources, whether it's Google Analytics or Shopify and, and various other sources where we can just manipulate the data, so it's it's more uh, it's just easier to like visualize and, and read. Okay. Um, in terms of attribution, I don't think that we're really using any specific tool holistically. Um, I think that's been a kind of an ongoing challenge in the industry, at least as far as I'm concerned. But what we do look at is we just uh, you know we, we look at how much we're spending every single day, and then how many orders that we convert. Period. Because you're not able to necessarily track. Uh, you know, not everyone is clicking on a link or using a code to, to track attribution. So being able to measure how much you're spending and then how many orders you're getting on a daily basis allows you to really see what your cost per order is. And, and we're measuring that on a daily basis. We're managing that on a daily basis. Uh, we have targets on a daily basis for the month. So it allows us to, if we're being very efficient one day, the next day we can, you know, we can ramp up if we're being less efficient. Um, then we ramp down and, and that's holistically every channel has a target so they're actually looking Facebook we know needs to be this you know Pinterest snapchat influencers whatever it is so um, so each team is kind of responsible for measuring their own channel and then holistically we're measuring the efficiency of the business yeah is it getting more expensive or less expensive to market on some of these more traditional channels say like Facebook and stuff like that yeah, it's getting more expensive, uh, largely because it's just you know becoming more and more saturated. Yeah. You know, I'm hopeful because as long as these big companies continue to acquire, they will. You know, like WhatsApp as an example. I, I don't remember how many, you know, billion two whatever one two billion people are on that platform, but that's new. That's new real estate to to uh, advertise on once they open that up. Um, whether it converts or not, we don't know. But again, it's us utilizing Facebook's data, which you know, they have some of the most of it. Uh, so <laughs> I think that, yeah, it's getting more expensive, but hope, hoping that, you know, there's more kind of inventory to, 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 you know, spread the budget across. And we're going to more traditional channels like TV, 
radio, podcast, direct mail. So um, those are, a lot of those take a minimum, there's a minimum threshold that you have to invest. So where Facebook, you can spend $10 a day, or you can spend $100,000 a day. Uh, when you're doing TV, there's, you know, typically you, you want uh, a produced spot. Uh, and then there's minimum buys just to get readings on, is this working, is this not? Yeah, yeah. I want to ask about that because it's been interesting to see a lot of these D2C brands make that pivot into TV and, and more of these traditional channels, whether it's out of home or we've, we've all seen the ads in the subway and stuff like that here for like Casper and stuff like that. But um, how hard is it to make that shift? Because I know it's, like you said, it can be expensive. I'm sure maybe having, like post-acquisition, we can come back to that, but uh, I'm sure having that extra power from the Movado group probably helps. But talk about that a bit. Like, how do you think about TV and how is it similar different than how you might have done creative for, um, for something that's purely online? So the difference, I think, is, you know, when you're doing it online, first off, the, the you know, analytics are in, you know, in real time. Um, you have great, you know, uh, conversion tracking. So, like, you, and just the system and how you're testing. You know, you can have a thousand ads that you're testing against each other or different videos and you can make tweaks and kind of in real time where TV, you're, you know, you're creating a produce spot. Maybe you're making three small edits uh, if you have a, you know, uh, like a, you know, somewhat of a, of a budget or a small, smaller budget. And, you know, there's certainly tracking and you're able to A-B test certain, you know, uh, A-B test certain things. You're able to see what times are working, what channels are working, uh, we, we track like cost per visit to the site, but all these things are kind of models that uh, either vendors that we work with or people on our team have built. So it's just not as uh, accurate as, uh, as any online kind of platform. So I guess with that, it's just, it, it's definitely been different. I think when you have, when you're advertising across the board, online and offline, there's just a lot of overflow. And that's why we do that, that cost per order tracking every single day because attribution is going to get screwed up and it's hard to you know determine where you give more credit to facebook's always going to say they're converting more google's always google's always going to say they're converting yeah. the most <laughs> and kind of so forth so it's it's important to really make sure you do your best to be able to identify who's actually you know uh pushing sales and and so that you can continue to increase budget in those areas yeah and then thinking about um i mean i'm just thinking about yes was it yesterday two days ago the apple event um, where they announced the new iPhone, or well, the new iPhone and the new Apple Watch, like the fifth, the fifth series. How are you guys thinking about competing against the smartphone watches? Because I've, I've got like one of each that kind of switch back and forth between like an analog watch and a, and a smartphone. But like, what are you noticing when you're thinking about consumer shifts of people just wanting to maybe unplug more? Because I know there's a lot of you know talk there, and people just want to pull off of social media and stuff like that, but is that helping you guys to sell more watches at this point, or? I don't know if, I don't know if it's helping us. I think for us, we've always looked at it as, you know, Apple Watch didn't really change anything. I think, you know, we are selling, and you know, this is a fashion accessory. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this, you know, this has an emotional tie to, 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 just like, you know, shoes or jeans or anything else that you go out and, and want to buy. So I think, so, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm still a fan of the Apple Watch. It's just, people aren't necessarily going to wear it. It's not their night out watch. Like yeah. everyone wants a little, uh, you know, uh, versatility in what they want to wear. And, and that's how we think about it. And that's why brand has always been important to us. And when you look at our brand, like we definitely leverage a lot of these acquisition channels, but 
we made sure that we've still focused on the brand and, and you know, for us, we wanted to build this aspirational brand. I was always inspired by the Nikes and Adidas of the world and how you have Skechers and some of these other guys and they're all generally making the same product, but uh, you know, Nike and Adidas have just done so well and, and created this community and, and um, so we kind of wanted to do that in that watch world and creating an aspirational brand, creating stories behind product. You'll see most of our collections that we have have a storytelling component to it. We're doing more and more collabs to kind of, you know, overlap audience and, and tell other people's stories. So again, I think the Apple Watch, you know, it's a, it's a piece of technology and I, and I still think it's, it's a great piece of technology, but this is a fashion accessory and, um, you know, people are still wearing Rolexes and everything else, so. Yeah. And the battery doesn't die half through the day. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's my own Apple Watch. Um, but I wanted to ask also, thinking about, I know we were talking a lot about the e-commerce side of things, but could you talk a bit about, I mean, just as a brand, like the creation process of making a new watch series and, and how is maybe the learnings from the sales side of things influencing maybe the watches you want to make next? Could you talk about, like, what is the process of designing, like, the next series of watches? Yeah, I mean, we try, we definitely use data and we're definitely looking at, you know, uh, elements of the watch, whether it's colors or it's materials or it's size or it's, you know, we have sportier watches versus, you know, dressier watches. We try not to rely too heavily on data because it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where, yeah. you know, if we only went off what worked, then we'd be sticking to exactly the, the, the first watch we ever came out with. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of like, we have a map as to what we want to hit uh, in terms of dressy or casual or sporty, et cetera. Um, and we're, you know, working, uh, you know, about 12 to 16 months in advance in terms of, you know, what the, what the, the watch actually, like what, what segment we're going after. Uh, and then we focus on size and then we get, you know, renderings and then we focus on colors and then we get samples. And uh, it's definitely a, a lengthy process though. Um, so it's, you know, it's done, it's done like we're, yeah, we're focusing now on, you know, the next, uh, you know, Q4 even of, of next year. So it's, it's pretty far in advance. Q4 of 2020. 2020, yeah. Man, it seems so far away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we won't talk about that other event happening in 2020, uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, could talk a bit about expansion too, because I know that you guys have been thinking about going into all these international markets, not just with watches, but all the other products. So. Could you talk about that a little bit, um, whether it's, you know, Brazil or India or China, um, and how are you maybe thinking about the platforms that you're advertising on, and how has that shifted? Those are the three hardest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so for us, you know, when we started actually Indiegogo and then even our first, I think, two years, we were about 70% international. Uh, we really didn't do anything special. It was not a great experience for the customers. They watches would often get caught up in duties and customs and or get caught, caught up in customs and they get duties applied to it. And, um, but people wanted the watch because it was the only place they can get it and they wanted the brand. So um, over time, we've started to optimize our website. We now offer uh, you know, over a dozen different currencies. We um, have in-country payments. So there's Klarna, there's Afterpay, there's I think it's Alipay and, and then various other kind of um, best practices per region. So every major kind of country that we sell to has a unique kind of experience. Um, so for, for like the English speaking ones and then even like most in Europe, it's pretty much through our own website. Now there are, when you look at Brazil or you look at even Mexico, China, 
there's marketplaces that just dominate the market. And I think it's, in my opinion, it's foolish to just think that you can, you know, uh, like there, these, these marketplaces obviously dominate. Even Amazon can't figure out China. So yeah. you need to figure out how to, to perform on Tmall and uh, it's completely different than, than even Amazon. And um, so we're taking our time. I mean, we've been fully kind of investing in just research on, on how to approach it. Um, but Tmall is something that we want to launch on. Um, and then we're already on a few other marketplaces and, you know, around the world. But I, you, you just can't, like even in Brazil, it's 100% uh, duty. So if, um. if it's a $100 watch, they're paying $200 just because of the tax. So you can't ship to, to Brazil and, and, you know, give the, the customer a good experience. So yeah. you just have to think about kind of domestic uh, solutions for them. Are you noticing more like like peer-to-peer -peer, like sharing and let's say like WeChat and stuff like that than you know like here everyone's focused on Instagram still mostly but are you, are you noticing pickup there where people are like hey like check out this watch or is that like the next level of commerce? I mean we've seen again we're not like you know we haven't we haven't really we've explored China like we know we're, we're still working on what the best strategy is because even China is rapidly changing yeah. and we want to make sure we execute right and it's a big investment um, but yeah, I mean, we've seen like if we go on, people know in China about movement. Just through, I actually don't really know exactly how they know, yeah. but they know <laughs> somehow. And um, because we we were we were still shipping to China, hmm. but I think they have difficulty accessing different sites, and especially because our our website's not fully translated yet. Um, so, I mean, I've seen yeah, we, it's it's definitely apparent on WeChat and some of these other tools, but. Again, we're not we're not too closely measuring it or looking at it just because we're not quite ready to, to launch in those markets. But yeah, I know we're about out of time. But the last thing I want to ask you about here is um, you guys were acquired by the Movado Group about a year ago, right? Yep. So what is like, the biggest change for for the company since then? Like, how did you pick them? And then also, what what's the big thing to, that you guys are looking at into this next year? Yeah, I mean, they help us with so they're you know, I think 70 plus years old. Um, and so they have, you know, manufacturing capabilities, they have, uh, you know, wholesale capabilities. So they have, uh, you know, whether it's JVs, distributors, or uh, subsidiaries in different, different markets around the world. So we pretty much hit the ground running and are already in uh, 3000 plus stores around the world. Um, and then when it comes to navigating China, navigating Brazil, like they have relationships that uh, we just wouldn't be capable of doing or we would have needed capital to do. So um, that's been really great. I think the amazing thing about Movado is they really respect the brand and the product and the team. So they understand like that is, is you know, what's important to us, but also it's what's important to them. And then they help us where they can. So um, just leveraging kind of, again, their infrastructure, their, their tools. They're a 1,300 person company with people around the globe. So Awesome. Well, uh, we'll end it there since we're out of time. But uh, yeah, thanks again. Yeah, yeah thanks.